KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. California's attorney general goes to bat for a life-saving drug. Please take the actions you can under federal law to try to boost the supply and the availability and the affordability of remdesivir. I'm Allison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego wrestles with how to provide decent health care to inmates of the county jails. The dispute is um, more ideological than just who's going to be delivering the services. Homicides in Mexico are rising and Tijuana has the highest count. And the San Diego Writers' Festival has been a page-turner. We'll hear what publishers are looking for from new storytellers. That's all ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, Featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. Our top story on Midday Edition. California's Attorney General Javier Becerra is calling on the federal government to increase the availability and decrease the price of remdesivir. It's the only drug given FDA authorization to treat COVID-19. But because of limited supplies, a National Institutes of Health panel recommends prioritizing the drug for hospitalized patients who require supplemental oxygen but are not on ventilators. Remdesivir's California-based manufacturer Gilead Sciences priced a round of treatment at $3,000. According to news reports, generic versions of the drug are being priced below $100 but are not available in the U.S., Becerra and other attorneys general sent a letter to federal agencies asking them to license out the drug to other producers since it was developed in part with taxpayer dollars. Becerra spoke to KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento hours after he sent the letter. Why are you taking this step as part of this coalition? Well, we haven't seen the federal government take the actions that it can. And uh, for many of us, we're watching too many of our our fellow Californians, fellow Americans, uh, either pass on or become ill. And when you've got some treatment that has shown some level of success in helping fight off the the virus, you got to do what you can. And when the federal government has the tools in place, the laws that allow them to, and we haven't seen them do it yet, but we think it's time. And it's a bipartisan letter that is going out from the majority of states in this country saying, please take the actions you can under federal law to try to boost the supply and the availability and the affordability of remdesivir, which is a a medication that has proven fairly successful in helping people combat COVID-19. You know, and I know there's a number of attorneys general that are involved in this, but California doesn't have the best relationship with, um, you know, the federal government. So I'm curious to know why you believe being one of the leaders of this is going to work. Listen, I, I, I think we take these issues as they come our way. Uh, and we're of the, uh, the belief that the uh, Health and Human Services Department at, uh, in Washington, D.C. is going to try to do everything it can to 
preserve life and, and keep people safe and protected against COVID-19. If that's the case, then we hope they'll look closely at their powers to actually increase the supply of remdesivir now. And it's a request that's being made not just by California. Uh, A.G. Landry, Jeff Landry from Louisiana, who joined me in co-leading this letter, uh, we were joined by 30 some odd other attorneys general from throughout the country bipartisanly to make this request because we've got the power and for many of us in our states we know that anything that helps us combat COVID-19 especially at the individual level uh, at the patient level is crucial. Why do you feel the need to take this step this would be forcing a company to is to do something why not work with the company? Because we're living in extraordinary times uh, this is not just a, uh, a simple, ordinary request. Uh, when almost 5 million Americans have now contracted the virus, when more than 150,000 Americans have died as a result of it, uh, extraordinary times. Do they require extraordinary measures. And we believe that one of those extraordinary measures, which the federal government has the tools to implement, is to increase the supply, make a drug more affordable and accessible because taxpayers actually invested in this drug to make it possible. Gilead, the manufacturer of remdesivir, certainly deserves credit for having produced this medication. But without taxpayer support, there's a very strong chance that remdesivir wouldn't be around, or at least wouldn't have been around as long. And so uh, taxpayers are invested in this drug in more way than one. And we should make sure that if it shows some uh, positive prospects uh, for helping people fight off the virus, we should be doing everything possible to make it available. And so far, Gilead has made it very clear they're only making a very small supply of this, and certainly they're selling it for outrageously high, high prices compared to what it costs them to, to produce. Have you had conversations with Gilead um, about this? And if so, what, what have they said? We've reached out. Um, you know, we always reach out. We've reached out to the federal government in the past to talk about COVID-19 and what we're all doing. Uh, look, uh, these are different times. And I hope that Gilead recognizes that this is not a time for it to hoard a supply or to, to be greedy with what it's got. Um, Scrooge is not, does not have a role to play in solving COVID-19. And so we need people to step forward. And we can ask kindly, politely, but we also have tools in our legal arsenal to move forward if we have recalcitrant stakeholders. And I would hope that Gilead would be a willing partner and that they would recognize the value in helping save human life and that they would join along with the federal government to do this. And if the federal government isn't willing to push that along, then we hope that the federal government would give states the authority, would give us the agency to do what they can do and assign that agency to us so that we in our particular states can take that action. Maybe some states won't ask, but I know some of us will. Literally just before this call, I had reached out to Gilead um, earlier today and they, they just got back to me for a comment in response to your letter. And they um, raise a couple of concerns about what they call inaccuracies. They A couple of them, just the one I want to read to you is, um, they claim that not all COVID-19 patients um, should even be treated um, with remdesivir because they're not all eligible to be treated for it because they um, you know, would recover before hospitalization and never even need it. 
And then um, they also say that um, the, the actions you're calling for wouldn't increase um, the speed or access to remdesivir um, because it takes six to 12 months to manufacture um, and it wouldn't produce additional doses uh, this year. Does it strike, strike you uh, uh, strange that I'm very suspicious of what they've just said? Listen, uh, we've been fighting COVID-19 now for five, six months. We've known about it for longer. Uh, we've known for a good portion of that time that remdesivir has shown some uh, positive results for people who are trying to fight off COVID-19. Um, Gilead is selling this drug for extremely high prices. They know it's in demand. I guarantee you, if you believe in the capitalist markets, that when there is a major demand, you increase your supply. Now, Gilead could certainly increase its supply. We can bicker about how much it could increase it and how quickly, but I'm not falling for that. They can do much more than what they're doing. And I'm hoping what the federal government do will call their bluff and require them to do more, or at least let the federal government then license others who could produce the medication to make it more available. Gilead doesn't have to make all its profits on the taxpayer's dime and at the expense of the lives of millions of Americans. And we hope that they'll be a good partner here, as I said, but one way or the other, it's time in these extraordinary times for us to act. And the federal government has tools to act. And if they won't take them, we, we hope that they'll recognize that there's some of us in, in various states who are prepared to try to take advantage of those tools and work with Gilead and our federal partners where possible. Thank you very much for your time, Attorney General Becerra. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Hospital Association of San Diego and Imperial County says it has not seen a shortage in the region, but appreciates any advocacy efforts to boost supply. The San Diego Sheriff spends $90 million a year on health care services for inmates of the county's jails. Meanwhile, the county has also spent about $8 million over the past decade on legal claims from jail inmates and their advocates, often tied to inadequate care. This week, at the Sheriff's request, San Diego County supervisors decided to explore whether to shift the responsibility for jail inmates' mental and physical health to private contractors. San Diego Union-Tribune investigative reporter Jeff McDonald has followed this issue for months leading up to yesterday's vote and joins us now. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Hello, thanks for having me. Okay, so yesterday the supervisors acknowledged that there is a problem. What is the problem? Is it the quality of the health care in the jails or the cost of health care in the jails? Well, I think the, uh, the sheriff would say the cost and uh, some of the advocates would say the quality of service that the inmates receive. Uh, there have been a number of cases where inmates have died and been injured due to lapses in medical or mental health care in San Diego County jails. Some of those inmates and their families have filed lawsuits against the county and recovered damages as a result of their injuries or death. Your reporting, in fact, has shown that the death rate at the county jails is the highest in, in California. How, how would you say the current medical and mental health care is contributing to the, the deaths of inmates? Kelly Davis and I spent six months looking at the jail deaths last year, and, and uh, even though a number of the, they have a high suicide rate, they 
inmates die, they die of natural causes, they die of accidents, uh, accidental deaths. Uh, San Diego has, as you said, the highest rate among the largest counties in California that we examined. A lot of the deaths are natural, uh, but the problem with that is that they, uh, they're classified as natural, even though they're uh, succumbing to diseases that are often treatable. And so the problem is that they're not getting adequate medical and mental health care in jail, and that leads to the inmates' deaths in many cases. Who provides mental health care and, and medical services to the inmates now? And how could that change if uh, what the supervisors are exploring takes place? It's state law that when you take someone into custody, you have to provide for their food and housing and medical uh, health care. Uh, so the sheriff is responsible for that when he books people into the county jail. Uh, right now, there's a patchwork of about 300 nurses and other administrative staff who work for the county of San Diego and work inside the jails uh, on the Medical Services Bureau. They also have a couple of dozen, more than two dozen uh, contractors that provide specialty services like uh, physicians, dentists, pharmacists, uh, experts like that. So right now, they have a, a combination of private contractors and public sector employees who deliver the services to the county's inmates. What the sheriff's trying to do now, or what he's exploring, is the idea of bringing in one general contractor who would run the whole, um, the whole uh, division and be responsible for all medical services. Now, the unions don't like it because it would cost the county several hundred jobs, about 300, uh, personnel, many of whom testified yesterday against the, uh, uh, the idea of moving forward with the outsourcing. Well, let's talk about how county employees and the union that represents them um, are reacting to this proposal to, to outsource these jobs. Here's SEIU Local Number 221's President David Garcias. Contracting out essential health care services will lead to worse care and the loss of our skilled workforce. Outsourcing has led more liability, lawsuits, and large settlements around the country. This is more expensive, not less. Now Sheriff Gore is proposing to bring the model to San Diego while the rest of the country moves away from it. At Fletcher's suggestion, the, the board agreed to also ask the county's Health and Human Services Department to, to bid on providing the jails with medical and mental health care. Uh, I remember when the county's waste disposal services opened to bids from the private sector and the county employees' bid came in lower. So might that happen again here? Uh, yes, that might happen again. But the dispute is um, more ideological than just who's going to be delivering the services. Uh, what Nathan Fletcher wants to do is to take the medical and mental health services responsibility away from the sheriff because he doesn't believe the sheriff is being diligent enough in delivering those services. He wants to put it under the purview of the Health and Human Services Agency so maybe Health and Human Services could deliver those services cheaper, but the dispute between the sheriff and the supervisor also extends to who would control those, uh, those folks. The sheriff, of course, wants to retain authority over who's ever in charge of health care for his inmates. Uh, Nathan Fletcher is saying that that obligation and responsibility should be taken away from the sheriff and given to the social workers who do that kind of work every day, all day. What's the sheriff's reaction to that? His answer to that is that state law dictates that the sheriff's department is responsible for the inmates, all, all the care and, uh, and uh, practices within the jails. So he's not willing to give up that responsibility. So that's something of a loggerheads that we'll have to see how that unfolds. 
In your reporting so far, Jeff, would you say it's the mental or the physical health care that's the most uh, problematic at this point? Oh, that's a difficult question. Uh, there, I would say equally so. We've seen cases where, you know, simple diseases, very easily treatable diseases result in deaths. And then the medical examiner will say, well, this person died from diabetes. It'll get recorded as a natural death, but most people don't die from diabetes. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty pervasive problem among the deaths that we examined over the 10 years between uh, 2009 and 2019 in the series that published last fall. That said, yeah, the Sheriff's Department is the biggest provider of mental health services in the region, uh, a point which he made before the Board of Supervisors in his argument yesterday. So clearly that's a, uh, a pervasive issue as well. So when will the bids come in and a decision be made on whether to contract out the health services in the jails? Well, they were a little um, shy on specific timelines. Nathan Fletcher had asked for uh, arresting this process for 80 days to give Health and Human Services time to put together a proposal. The sheriff didn't like that, of course. Uh, the expectation is that he'll move forward straight away with um, soliciting the, the potential bids and then using that information to write up a request for proposals, which is a more formalized, uh, basically a contract uh, solicitation. Uh, that could happen as soon as this year. It's interesting that the Board of Supervisors is scheduled to change uh, two seats this, this, uh, this November. So maybe the sheriff wants to get this done before the board changes, and, and maybe not. That uh, didn't come up in the discussion, but it's certainly an open political consideration. Thanks, as always, for your reporting. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. That's Jeff McDonald, investigative reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Allison St. John. KPBS partner iNewsSource is launching a series today called Veterans Voices. It will follow veterans as the San Diego VA removes them from a drug treatment that's been effective in relieving their depression and suicidal thoughts. iNewsSource investigative reporter Brad Racino kicks off the series with a local Marine's story. And as a warning to our listeners, this story discusses suicidal thoughts and fears. This is Henry. Henry, uh, but Henry was the beginning of my plant obsession. Kaya Bender is a 29-year-old Marine veteran with a history of major depression and suicidal thoughts. And then parsley, basil, mint, oregano. He recently gave us a tour of the garden outside his Vista apartment. I, I have like these crazy like dreams of like what it would look like, like this big old food forest. It's just like a bunch of fruit trees and like uh, other food plants. Just the assumption that he'll be alive to see that happen is proof to Bender that his ketamine drug treatments are working. You know, and the suicidal thoughts are just like kind of gone. Like I don't, it's really like freeing. Ketamine began in the 1960s as a veterinary anesthetic. But in the early 2000s, scientists began to notice its tremendous effect on patients with treatment-resistant depression. They also recognized ketamine's ability to rapidly reduce suicidal impulses, as it did with Bender. And I, you know, and I couldn't have imagined being able, being capable of doing the things that I'm doing now every single day. 
For years, the San Diego VA has referred patients like Bender for ketamine treatment at the Kadima Neuropsychiatry Institute in La Jolla to great success. Kadima is run by Dr. David Feifel, a former UC San Diego and VA psychiatrist. Feifel is an expert in ketamine, having administered it for over a decade. Uh, I recognize that this was really something like I've never seen in uh, my uh, years uh, in the field of psychiatry. It had, it had limitations for sure, but it also had, um, had characteristics that uh, we had not seen in terms of the ability to improve people's uh, major depression uh, when nothing else did, and also many times to do it very, very rapidly. Despite San Diego VA psychiatrists lauding FIFO's success with their vets, in May, the agency began telling patients that their time at Kadima would soon end. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. The agency planned to bring vets back in-house for an alternative drug treatment called Spravato. I am scared that, you know, they, they're, what they're doing won't be enough and that I'll end up feeling like I did before ketamine. And I, that, that's... It's terrifying to me because I don't know if I would make it through it again. Now, Kadima's vets are pleading with VA leadership not to stop a treatment that for the first time gave them hope. Some are reaching out to politicians, including San Diego Congressman Scott Peters, whose office is working directly with some of the vets affected. Uh, so our job now is to make sure the mental health professionals at the VA are looking at each case individually and giving uh, each individual what works for them. Um, because it works, not because it's what's convenient for the VA. There are a few dozen vets caught up in this ongoing situation. That's why iNewsource created this series, Veterans Voices, to let them share their stories. It will provide a first-hand look at how local veterans are grappling with mental illness and fighting for their own health care within the VA system. Joining me is iNewsource investigative reporter Brad Racino. Brad, welcome. Thanks for having me. Is this switch from ketamine to the other drug happening in VA treatment all over the country, or is it only here? So we still don't know the full scope of what's happening outside of San Diego, but that's not for lack of trying. It's just that the VA's office in D.C. has refused to answer questions about this. What we've been able to piece together is that last year, after President Trump touted Spravato as a game changer in combating veteran suicides, a small number of VAs began adopting the drug, and San Diego was one of those. Is there just anecdotal evidence that ketamine works in helping depression and suicidal thoughts, or has that drug been clinically proven? It has been clinically proven, but it hasn't gone through FDA approval for this specific use. So experts have told me that's because ketamine is old and off patent, and that means any pharmaceutical company that would spend the tens of millions of dollars required to go through FDA approval wouldn't then be able to recoup those costs afterward by doing what drug companies normally do, which is patent their drug. Have you gotten any answers about why the VA is ending the ketamine treatment and moving to Spravato? So we've heard lots of explanations from the San Diego VA, um, but none of them make any sense. So bear with me, I'll go through them real quick. So for example, first, the VA said it was removing vets from Kadima because the agency could provide the same type of ketamine treatment in-house, but that wasn't true. 
Then they cited patient safety concerns. They said because Kadima was providing a non-FDA approved treatment, it's safer to have these vets on Spravato, which is FDA approved, which makes sense, except every veteran who has been pulled from Kadima, put on Spravato at the VA and failed the drug has been put right back on ketamine at the VA, which is not FDA approved. And then one last thing, the VA also said they only recently learned Kadima was providing ketamine through an injection and not an IV, and that that's not standard practice and therefore it's dangerous. However, I have notes from VA psychiatrists showing that they've known that was the case for years and administrators approved it. So it's a confusing mess of lies that we're still trying to sort out, uh, but even the vets aren't getting a straight answer. Here's Joel Andrews, an army vet we profiled who talked about the lack of explanation from VA doctors. It let, it's like another just let down, you know, like you, you got to learn that you can't rely on <laughs> other people. You got to take action yourself or you can't get what you want in this world. And it's frustrating because nobody has a definitive answer as to what the hell's going on with all of this. It's like they're playing some game and they're trying to keep it a secret. Now, it seems like the rate of suicide among veterans was very much in the news, let's say a couple of years ago. How big a problem does depression and suicide remain among veterans? Sadly, it's still a very big problem that has actually only gotten worse over time. In 2017, the suicide rate among veterans was about one and a half times higher than non-veterans in the U.S. And last year, President Trump called on a number of federal agencies, including the VA, to develop a strategy for ending veteran suicide. That is now called PREVENTS. But it's obviously a complicated thing to tackle because there is no single medical cause for suicide and no single treatment or prevention strategy. Um, here's Navy vet Larry McMinn, another local veteran we're profiling, and he's explaining his depression. It's debilitating disease for people. And unfortunately, it isn't discussed enough. And every single day, suicide crossed my mind multiple times. Has this switch off ketamine started yet at the San Diego VA? Yes, and different veterans are at different stages of that transition. So those I've interviewed who were removed from ketamine and put on Spravato said Spravato isn't working for them. They were then put back on ketamine at the VA, but at a much lower dose than they were used to. And they're very unhappy and scared. Um, a lot of them are scared that they'll regress to the, the place they were before they started ketamine treatments. How much help have vets who want to stay on ketamine treatment gotten from, let's say, experts and politicians? So they've gotten some. San Diego Congressman Scott Peters' office is working on this with the VA. The House Veterans Affairs Committee is looking into the situation, and I'm told there may be other investigations just starting up uh, among one or more federal agencies. And can you give us an idea, Brad, about the other vet voices that we'll be hearing from in this series? So we've got veterans from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines lined up who want to share their stories. So these are men and women with very different backgrounds and experiences who are all eager to bring this issue to light and let the public know what's happening here. So they'll all be featured at inewsource.org slash veteransvoices. And I've been speaking with iNewsource investigative reporter Brad Racino. Brad, thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 
8255. The number of homicides in Mexico hit an all-time high last year, and major drug cartels are diversifying into international criminal enterprises. Those are two of the disturbing findings in the latest Justice in Mexico report compiled by researchers at the University of San Diego. The report also finds that the city of Tijuana has the highest number of homicides in Mexico. Joining me is David Shirk, co-author of the report and director of the Justice in Mexico project at the University of San Diego. David, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Looking at some of the figures... There were more than 29,000 homicide cases in Mexico last year, more than 34,000 victims. Are these homicides mostly to do with drug cartel violence? It's difficult to say. Um, We know that a a significant share are related to um, organized crime. Uh, it's very difficult to say that what the precise proportion is, in part because there's not really a way to um, measure what is an organized crime killing. I mean, you find a body on the side of the road, it's got multiple gunshot wounds, it's got a message from uh, the new generation cartel, um, and you can mark that one as as probably related to organized crime. Uh, but there's no official accounting of the number of organized crime killings. So uh, we use estimates that are generated by Mexican newspapers and other sources to try to uh, roughly guess the the approximate number. And that ranges, unfortunately, between 40 and 60% of homicides. So we don't know if it's most, but it's a big chunk. How does the rate of homicide last year compare with previous years? Last year's rate was the highest on record. That translates into a rate of about uh, 27.4, 27.5 per 100,000. The problem of, of course, you know, that's a very high rate, but it's, it's only marginally higher than the year before. 2019 was very, very violent, uh, but 2018 was also very, very violent. Um, and those two years are, are roughly on par. We, we can't say that the violence is rising rapidly, but we can say that it is at, it has sort of stabilized at a very high level. When you look specifically at Tijuana, on one hand, it recorded the highest number of homicides in all of Mexico. But for the first time in five years, it was not one of the top five cities for assault and robbery cases. What do you think is going on there? That's really interesting. And, and if you look at the data on homicides and assaults, specifically in Tijuana, they're almost um, inversely correlated, which means they're going in opposite directions. As homicides have risen, we've seen the number of assaults go down. And I think a cynical conclusion uh, looking at those data might be that the the people who are trying to kill other people are becoming better shots, right? Um, That effectively, um, they're less likely to injure someone in an attack and more likely to kill them. Uh, and that's that's partly because of the lethality of uh, the violence. We've, I should say that is an illustration of the lethality of the violence and the fact that so many of these homicides, over 90% of them are uh, committed with high-powered uh, weapons, uh, firearms, including you know uh, assault-type weapons, especially imported from the United States, uh, but, but a whole variety of, of firearms that are not available for retail purchase in Mexico uh, and have to be smuggled across the border. Now, one of the statistics in this report that jumped out at me was that almost half the women in Mexico reported to have been victims of violence by their partners. Can you tell us more about that? If anything jumped out uh, 
as a, as distinct about the last year. It is the growing attention to the longstanding problem of violence against women. Um, and this is not violence uh, perpetrated by Chapo Guzman uh, and, and high profile drug traffickers. Uh, this is widespread um, sort of societal uh, violence uh, targeting women and instances of domestic violence, but also, you know, high profile cases that, that uh, showed up in the media of women being targeted by boyfriends, former boyfriends, by random people, a, a seven-year-old girl abducted uh, in Mexico City and found dead uh, days later. Uh, but, but the past year, we've just seen numerous cases uh, of that nature that have drawn public attention and generated enormous public protest in Mexico. It's not clear to me exactly whether the actual number of cases of femicide, as it's called, or uh, violence targeting women has increased, or whether we're seeing uh, just greater scrutiny, uh, public scrutiny and also law enforcement scrutiny of those kinds of cases. Um, either way, it's a serious problem that, um, that Mexico needs to address and that unfortunately, uh, the current federal government in Mexico has not really taken very seriously. This year, Mexico has been struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, just like most of the rest of the world. Now, isn't there any indication that the virus has made an impact on crime in Mexico? So far, um, we're not seeing reductions in violence. In other words, uh, the uh, criminal groups continue to engage in violent behavior that has led to uh, a sort of steady level of homicides over the last few months. One thing that we think is going on is that the closures in China have led to su supply chain interruptions that have made it more difficult for drug cartels and have led perhaps to increased fighting among them uh, for access to and control over the movement of, of drugs. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, all it means is higher prices for drug users in the United States. Um, it, do, it has not substantially reduced uh, demand. If anything, uh, people uh, who, who are addicted to drugs are have more time uh, and more anxiety uh, right now. Now, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador was elected in 2018 in the hopes of maybe ending some of this crime, the security problems in Mexico. How would you say he's doing? Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, when he came into office, believed that the, the, the central uh, the, the roots of Mexico's violent crime really stemmed from broader socioeconomic problems like poverty, inequality, lack of education, unemployment. And, and he set about trying to generate um, social welfare policies that would help to address those problems. Um, now, even if we assume that he had been totally successful in uh, that, that his social welfare policies are designed extremely well and will have a real impact on those socioeconomic problems, which I think is doubtful. Those are long-term ventures, long-term investments that are not going to show up uh, in a year or two. While Lopez Obrador has said, I'm not going to go after the drug cartel leaders, I'm going to leave them alone so that they can stop fighting. 
he's moved away from that strategy from time to time. He's not been consistent. Um, he lets go Chapo Guzman's son, but then uh, just days ago, uh, he captured a um, well-known uh, criminal actor from the Santa Rosalia Lima cartel, uh, uh, whose nickname is El Moro. So, you know, the, the Lopez Obrador administration has not identified a strategy, stuck by that strategy, and doesn't uh, really have a plan for diminishing violence in the short term, that is the next three to five years. David Shirk is co-author of the report and director of the Justice in Mexico Project at the University of San Diego. David, thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Cavanaugh. Writing is such a powerful thing to do. It can change your space, take you deeper, help you connect with yourself. The San Diego Writers' Festival is bringing writers together to talk about storytelling of all sorts. It's the second year they've done this. Last year, thousands of writers showed up to the first festival at the San Diego Library downtown, creating a great sense of inspiration and community. This year, it's different. It's online, but it's just as inspirational. And the upside is that even if you miss the early sessions, you can go back and watch them. Joining me is the founder of the San Diego Writers' Festival, Marnie Friedman. Thanks for being here, Marnie. Thank you for having me. And Elise Capron, who works with San Diego's premier literary agency, the Sandy Dykstra Agency, which describes itself as the premier agency for authors to find and sell books that make a difference. Thank you for having me. Now, the Writers' Festival has taken place over four Saturdays, and the final Saturday is this coming weekend. So what is the focus of this coming session? Um, the focus of this session, I'm really excited about this one, is publishing and platform building. Um, my co-founder, uh, Jennifer Thompson, shout out to her. She's awesome. She's going to be doing a really cool um, session on author branding um, and platform building. The most amazing agent I know, Elise Capron. She's going to be doing two sessions. So one is um, avoiding the slush pile. People love that one. And if you're wondering what an agent does, or you're wondering what an agent, you know, um, how to not end up in the circular file, as they say, the garbage. And then we're going to be doing Publishing 101, what every author needs to know about publicity. We're doing an agent pitch fest. Um, at this moment that you're hearing it, you can still sign up to be on the wait list. They're all, the spots are all filled up, but in case there are some people that drop out, you might want to put your name on the wait list. What is a pitch fest? Every author gets seven minutes. So you have to summarize your book and why it's something that the agent should pick up in like three to four minutes. So this time we're going to be doing it through Zoom sessions and breakout sessions. So the public itself won't get to see the, the pitch sessions because um, I think the, the writers would be too nervous. But people are signed up beforehand and then they get to pitch three different San Diego agents. That's quite a, an opportunity for a budding writer. Now, Elise, you're working with authors who want to get published. Are San Diego authors getting published much these days? Oh, certainly. I mean, 
Well, I will say as an agency, we work with writers all around the world, not just in California or San Diego, but, right. um, but absolutely. I mean, there are, one thing that's nice is that even, you know, during the pandemic, when we're all stuck at home, we need entertainment, we need books to read. And so very, very fortunately, book publishing has remained, um, a, you know, a few, a few hookups at first when all the shutdown was happening, but overall has remained a pretty vibrant industry. Um, and it's a time to really focus on if you have the mental energy to do it, really focus on writing as healing and working on projects if you can and you know, using this time to maybe come out with a marketable project at the end of all this. Mm. A lot of time in front of our computers right now. Yes. So this weekend, you're going to be talking about how to avoid that uh, dreaded slush pile, you know, the pile of rejects at a literary agency. How many books a week do you get pitched and how many actually make it? Great question. <laughs> um, yeah, so most agents, and of course us included, are getting hundreds of queries every single week. And those are hundreds of unsolicited queries. So one of the best things any writer can do is to learn how to make some direct connections with whichever agent they are approaching and learn how to bypass that you know dreaded slush cycle um, because it is tough publishing is a difficult difficult business it's hard to really figure out the tricks of the trade and to learn how to make those valuable connections and get to the next step so everything that i'll be talking about and the focus of really everything that Marnie has organized on Saturday will be about understanding the landscape of this industry that all the writers want to be a part of. And what are you looking for when you read a manuscript, Elise? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so, I mean, of course it depends on what any particular agent is specifically focused on, but I'm looking for stories I have never heard before. And I'm looking for voices that feel fresh and new. And I think that's probably a key question that any writer should ask him or herself is what is your perspective or approach contributing that no one else is quite doing? What is truly new about your work? Does it make a difference how willing an author is to work with you to, to make those painful changes that you know will be needed to get a book published? Absolutely. We are looking for a partnership with an author. We are hoping to have a team player who can be, we can go on this publishing journey together for hopefully many years and many books to come. We look to develop careers and long lasting relationships. So yes, it is vitally important, not that an author just listen to everything we say, but that we can communicate clearly with each other and be on the same page about the priorities for, for a particular book project and get to to a finish line where it really works well on all levels. Mm. And are you expecting that this pandemic quarantine will produce any good books? Are you getting some already? I was a little bit worried when the pandemic started about everybody's mental space and things just getting very slowed down. And they were for a little while at the beginning. Um, but now we are seeing that lots of exciting stuff is happening. There's also a wonderful um, sense of inclusivity right now more than ever in publishing, which Marnie has been a huge part of with this festival as well, is making it accessible and inclusive for all types of writers and all types of people. And um, I think that is we're seeing that in the industry as a whole right now. So um, this is a great time for all voices and all types of writers and human beings. And I really love that. Marnie, you are also a great motivator of writers in this town. Right now, my, my specific 
a passion is community because I know so many people are struggling and and the writing to heal. I think, um, you know, it, it, it's been such a healing force in my life and I've watched it. I'm a memoir teacher. And so that I didn't expect it to have a, such a healing um, impact on the writers that I work with. So that's my big passion right now. Can you give us a couple of ideas that you've learned about why writing is so healing? Expressive writing has finally been studied, um, been over about 300 uh, research studies to show it that it's effective. And I think one of the first reasons why it's so effective is we walk around all day and we, we deny our feelings and we put on a mask and we say everything's okay and we just, you know, buck up and keep going. And expressive writing can really help you tap into this is how I feel and it's okay that I feel this way to not approach it with any shame or blame uh, to accept where you're at and doing that actually allows you to move through it to a more creative place um, so that's just one you know really simple secret if you can do it at least four days a week um, they recommend 20 minutes, but you can do two minutes, three minutes and just write, you know, today I feel you don't have to moderate or pretend you just get to say how you truly feel. So that's how it's helping the individuals. You were talking earlier about community. Do you have a sense of how San Diego is growing as a writing community? I, I feel it's really growing right now. Also, the kids write. I'm so blown away by what's happening with kids right you know so much is going on in our world right now and kids are really wanting to have a voice and so we started the the kids right contest and just watching that start to blossom we've been shocked at how much people are craving this community and wanting it to grow so if anyone that is hearing this that doesn't know about us please join us on Saturday we'll hopefully walk away feeling inspired and you'll have more tools in your tool belt and for people who want to go back and perhaps watch one of the sessions that have already happened, do you have any tips about ones that might be particularly relevant for, for new writers? So the screenwriting panels, people are really interested in. But go back and look at all the, the, the offerings. Uh, John Vorhaus spoke about how to have uh, create a process, especially when you are under stress, how to connect to your creative process. Okay, and this Saturday, the session starts at 10 o'clock and runs till after 6 o'clock. All you have to do is go to sandiegowritersfestival.com and sign up. And it's free, right? Free, 100%. Marnie Friedman, the founder of the San Diego Writers Festival, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And Elise Capron from the Sandy Dijkstra Agency. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.